Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today, we're going to be replaying one of our most popular episodes of the last year, an interview I did with my brother, Taryn Bragdon, about what to do in a seven-figure donor meeting. We've gotten so much feedback about this episode in particular on how helpful it was for nonprofit leaders who are looking to increase their skills or figure out fundraising for the first time. Hope you enjoy the episode. Taryn works as the CEO of the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit he started in 2011 with just $50,000 in seed money and has now grown to over $13 million in annual revenue. In this second episode, we pull back the curtain on what happens in six- and seven-figure donor meetings. We look at the one critical question you should ask at the start of every donor meeting and how to make that tricky transition from the small talk with your donor to the ask. We also explore how to structure your fundraising pitch so it connects and resonates with your donors. Our topic today is knowing what to say at a donor meeting. So to jump right in, Taryn, why is it so hard to know what to say at a donor meeting? I think that it's only hard to know what to say at a donor meeting if you haven't planned it out. The reality is that I used to struggle with managing a donor meeting because I didn't plan it out. I would lie to myself and say, okay, here's a few bullets of what I want to cover in the donor meeting. But instead of a thoughtful conversation and a whole pitch that outlined Here's what our organization has accomplished. Here's where we're going. And here's the opportunity for you as a donor to help us get there. Instead of that thoughtful journey of taking the donor on as part of a one-on-one meeting, instead, I would just have this rambling conversation where we talk to them about what they're concerned with. They might bring up something that they read in the newspaper recently. I'd try to randomly connect it to something that we were randomly working on. And instead of an inspirational vision and an urgent opportunity for that donor to partner with us. Instead, it was just a pleasant conversation. Nothing wrong with a pleasant conversation, but it doesn't raise money. So is that how you were taught to fundraise, or is that just how you like thought fundraising happened? How did you come around to that process? Well, I wasn't taught anything. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of professional development when it comes to fundraising is maybe focused on what certain vendors want to sell you, which is usually based on a tactic, or it's really high level with what's the mindset of a donor or how do you want to think about donors. There's not as much professional development in here's how a donor meeting is structured, here's what you need to communicate to them, and here's how you ultimately ask for money. And that sort of structure isn't magic beans. It's just something that can be outlined, can be taught, um, and that anyone who's passionate about the work that they're doing can actually do. So it's like a lot of things where you don't understand it. You just kind of make up what your best guess is of how that happens, especially when you have no experience doing it. Yeah, I think when I think about other things, Trevor, in my life like this, it's before I got married, I would hear people say, you have to work at your marriage. And I would think I knew what that meant. But until we got married, had kids, had the challenges that come with everyday life, as well as the amazing experiences of building a life together, you don't really understand that context. It's the same is true for a lot of things in development. It seems like a black box to people. They're thrown into a role where they have to lead an organization or they want to lead an organization that they have founded. 
but they don't really understand what's inside that black box and how do you have the mindset and skill set to do it really well. So if we were to open up that black box, what would it look like now? Like, how do you know what to say when you go to a donor meeting? So I know what to say when I go to a donor meeting because I script it out. You have about 10 minutes uh, as part of a donor meeting to really lay out, here's your vision of the opportunity for that donor to either partner with you uh, for the first time, if it's a prospect meeting, or here's an opportunity for that donor to renew their partnership with you and your organization uh, and to hopefully increase that partnership by increasing their gift. But they only can really understand that if you put in the time and effort to communicate that vision and that pitch in a compelling way. And the only way to do that is not to be born a great salesman, but like any, uh, like any endeavor, you want to prepare, practice, and really be compelling. And the way to be compelling is to take the time and effort to think of what are the right words to say, what are the right ways to supplement what I'm saying with some compelling visuals? And what is the overarching message that I want to get across? And then importantly, and this is where a lot of people stumble, how do I actually make the ask at the end of this pitch? Right. And for a lot of people, that's the most terrifying part of the fundraising experiences, knowing what to say at that critical ask moment. Right. And so if I don't know how to end it, then I usually won't. I'll either stumble and say, you know, I, I, I hope you'll consider giving to us, which sounds weak, or it sounds like you don't really need the money. You don't want to sound desperate, but you do want to get across the message to them that this is something that we need if we're going to accomplish this big thing that I just laid out for you. So can you like go really tactical and walk us through what it's like in the donor meeting like from the very start, you walk in, you shake hands with the donor. When do you bring in the pitch? Like, is that right at the start? Is that mid? Like, where in that process? Can you just go walk through like what an average donor meeting looks like? Well, first and foremost, you want to have a sense of how much time do you have with this donor? Um, not that it will really change the first part of your meeting, but you want to have a sense of just what is your overall runway, if you will. So I'll always say, you know, I really appreciate your time. Um, how much time do we have together? Just to confirm that. You'll be shocked. Sometimes you have, you know, literally a billionaire who says, well, I don't have anything for an hour and a half. And sometimes you'll have somebody that says, I only have a half hour uh, and you thought you had an hour. So you want to ask that up front. I find whether it's a donor uh, that you've known for years or a new prospect, you want to have the first few minutes of the conversation being a little bit of small talk, making some connections. Um, I heard somebody use the analogy of, like, imagine you're a boat and you're trying to find a harbor to dock in. So you're usually trying to establish some different con connections with that person. Maybe it's a geographic connection based on information that you have. Maybe if it's a common concern or common ideology. Uh, maybe it's just talking about growing a business or being a family person or some mutual friend, if it was a reference a referral rather. Um, but just establishing that connection and having a little bit of that small talk. But don't let that small talk run more than 10 minutes. Because what will happen is you'll rapidly lose track of time. And what you want to do is after that initial small talk and getting to know you a bit, you want to then say, I know we have limited time together. And I want to just take eight or nine minutes of your time to lay out for you what we've accomplished and the opportunity in front of us. And that's your signal that we're then moving into 
a, basically a pitch or a little bit of a monologue. Um, by telling the person exactly how long you're going to take, you're subtly saying to them, so if you could hold your questions until the end. I wouldn't say that to them, but that's basically what you're outlining to them of, I'm going to take a few minutes and then we can talk more about it. Uh, and then you want to go into your scripted pitch of, here's exactly what I want to communicate. Here's exactly how I'm going to communicate it. And here's the best way to communicate the key thoughts of that uh, because I've laid it out exactly. Like there's not several different ways to say something in a most compelling way. There's usually one best way and you want to be sure you say it that way every time. So then after you've done, you confirm at the beginning of the meeting how long you have. You have this ten, you know, eight to 10 minutes of small talk. You have a transitional line you've prepared ahead of time to get into your pitch then what happens after you've made the ask? What do you normally see there? So you ask for money and then you stop talking. You never want to be the next person to speak because you want to give the respect of the donor or the prospect to think about it. And that can be really hard for somebody who's in sales to just be quiet because they're used to filling the air with something. You know, that's part of the small talk, for example, not letting a lot of dead air. But after you do the ask, you want to just shut up stop talking and wait for the person to respond. How Even long if can that, that take, or how long would that be normally that you wait? Sometimes it might be a few seconds. Sometimes it might be uncomfortably long, like 30 seconds, a minute or so. Just sit there and wait. And then usually the individual will respond with often not a yes or no, because they have to talk to their spouse or think about it, particularly if you're asking for a major amount of money. But they'll respond with, Maybe it's a question. Maybe it's a, I'll think about it and I'll get back to you. Uh, and then you can ask, well, what would be the best way to follow up? Or maybe they'll respond with a question and they'll want to go more into detail. I've also had people ask questions throughout the presentation, which is fine. And you obviously want to answer them. But what's helpful with having a script is it allows you to remember, okay, here's where you know we went down this rabbit hole with a question or I just responded quickly. And then here's how I bring it back. And so that's what's really helpful about a script, too, is if the questions come during the presentation, you know exactly how to bring it back and the thought you want to communicate. I've often seen that sometimes a donor's having fun with you. And so they might interrupt you right when they know you're getting to the ask. Um, don't let it go. Come back to it and say, you know, quick recap. Uh, like when I say quick, I mean a few sentences. And then make the ask. Always make the ask in the meeting if that's the purpose of the meeting, because you that's you can only get money if you ask for it. Very rarely has somebody volunteered giving me money without me asking for it. Right. And with the whole what you said earlier of the donors sometimes interrupt you right before the ask, what's going on there? Like, why are they doing that? I have found that people who give money really like giving money. It's a key part of who they consider themselves to be a key part of how they positively influence the world. And so they're having fun with it. And sometimes they're just having fun with it to just see how you'll respond, see how you'll respond to a tough question, see how you'll respond if they, if they interrupt uh, your pitch or flow. Uh, they're just having fun. And so you want to have fun back, but you also want to get out the entire thought that you're communicating. So don't, I, what I would say is don't read into it more than that. That makes sense. So what would be an example of a tough question you've gotten from a donor after you've done your pitch, you've made your ask, 
then, or even during your pitch? What's an example of a tough question? So they might ask you something really specific about how are you going to do this? Uh, or how do you know it will have this particular outcome? Um, one of the things that I've found with individual donors is they, a lot of them are, or most of them are self-made, they're entrepreneurial. And so part of what they're asking is to, they understand that you try things, you succeed, but you often fail. And what do you learn from those failures or how will you adapt if you fail in the thing you're trying to, uh, you know, the next hill you're trying to climb? And so a lot of times the tough questions are related to that. Again, not because they're being hostile or they're skeptical, but they're trying to understand. And the lens that they see the world through is an entrepreneur's lens, which is I take a lot of risks. Some of them pay off. Some of them fail, but I learn from everything. And that's what they want to understand with you. And it's part of also as a head of a growing nonprofit, you're establishing yourself as a peer to them. You're an entrepreneur in your nonprofit world, just like they're an entrepreneur in their for-profit world. Uh, and so it's a bit of them uh, like uh, talking to you like they would any kind of peer. Right. So in some ways, they're looking to understand your thinking, how you approach problems, your um, problem solving skills and that sort of area. Exactly. Great. So then so you've made your ask, you have this question and answer period. Then how long does that question answer period go? And then before the meeting wraps up, how do you tend to end these meetings? So I think that, first of all, you never want to ask for anything else before you ask them for money. So say you're going to, in a meeting, ask for a referral to somebody else who uh, is like-minded, who might be interested in becoming a donor. Don't ask for the referral before you ask for money because you want to make your most critical ask first and see how they respond before you ask for anything else. But I've found that usually the remaining part of the meeting goes into more of a general conversation about what you're trying to do, uh, successes and failures that you've had, or they might then ask some follow-up details. Um, what's really fun about fundraising is you interact with some of the most amazing accomplished people, and there's a lot you can learn from it. So oftentimes, I'll have questions that I want to ask that particular donor about. It could be anything from you know, lessons learned as a father, you know, uh, or uh, parent health issues, uh, struggles with leading a growing organization. There's a lot of just life experience and perspective that that donor can give you. And it's fun to interact with folks and learn from that. That's really interesting. I think sometimes people get so worried and focused on the ask for money, they forget about like all of the knowledge they can gain from the donors themselves, not just a check, but that whole point of they've grown successful businesses, they've had families, they've lots of different aspects that they could add value to your organization beyond just the check and you as a leader. It's really true. And you'll only know that if you ask, but it's amazing just the really valuable feedback you get. I would say again, though, don't only have those kinds of conversations and not have a pitch and not ask for money because ultimately it's a partnership for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is what's the big thing your nonprofit is trying to accomplish. Um, I, I think that you can have these other really wonderful experiences and that's part of creating a deep partnership. But just like the donor has business partners or if it's a foundation has other fundraising or uh, other grant making priorities, you want to partner with them for a very specific purpose. And that's first and foremost, which is why that's 
the first part of the meeting. You know, the first 20 minutes are focused on that. And then you can have other types of conversations, either about your business or about lessons learned or other things that you want to engage the donor or prospect on. So two questions just to follow up on that. What do you, like, we talked a lot in the last episode about that whole, like, partnership arrangement with your donor and how you think of them as a partner, not an investor. And we dove into that quite a bit. But what you're saying where you're talking about asking for a specific amount of money, you know, getting, you know, having some small talk, but getting right into the pitch and setting this up like a partnership arrangement, that's a lot, quite a bit different from, a lot of their relational fundraising advice where you go and you get to know the donor over a couple meetings and then you might ask them for money maybe on your third or fourth meeting. Talk to us like why you do that differently because that's been a lot of the fundraising advice people have gotten over the years. I think a lot of that advice of getting to know a donor or a prospect with lots of relationship meetings comes at it with a good intention of you want to establish a personal connection but it's misinformed in that you can't do that early on. And one of the things that I've found is people who have the capacity to give a lot of money are very busy and they want folks to get to the point. I had a donor say to me when I said, I'm going to go into a little bit of a pitch and tell you what we're doing. The donor said, well, that's great. I'm pitched all the time. And I thought, of course you are. You run a big business. You have uh, you know important vendor relationships that folks come in and pitch you on. You have a lot of different ways that you interact with folks, both internally and externally. And I want to interact with you in a a format, if you will, that you're familiar with and that is very specific for a purpose. What I've found is most of us aren't looking for more friends, but most of us are looking for ways that we can positively impact the world. And that's through different types of partnerships. And the donor's no different. So I would just say, or the prospect is no different. So I would say, always kiss on the first date. If you're sitting down with a prospect and they're willing to take a meeting and you're clear up front that you're going to lay out an opportunity for them to partner with you, they know why you're there. They're not going to say, hey, ask me for money if you don't, but there's no harm in asking them for money right up front. And if they're not interested or they want to have further meetings, they'll tell you. But why would you dictate this long, drawn-out process if the prospect isn't uh, looking for that? Conversely, though, on the donor front, I would say, we only ask for money once a year. And so somebody knows that there's a very set time and there's a very set structure of when we're going to ask somebody for money. We're not going to ask them for money for a bunch of little projects all throughout the year. We're not going to have them write a big check and then ask them to sponsor a table with a smaller check. This is a partnership. We ask for money once a year for a big purpose. And even though we might do other things throughout the course of the year, update them on what we're doing, invite them to different events, invite them to bring their friends to different events, all those other things do not cost money uh, or we're not asking for money as part of it. And so I think that that's part of just having a respect and structure that honors the donor or the prospect, but is also really transparent. And you want to, and your donor wants you to maximize your time in pursuit of the mission. And that means getting to the point with prospects. And it also means honoring the donor by doing good work, letting them know about it, and then also honoring the partnership by just asking for money once a year. And do you specifically tell them that you only ask once a year? Yes, I do. And people really like that because they don't want to be nickeled and dimed. Think about if you go to a nice hotel and you've spent, you know, whatever the number is, say $200 for a room for the night. And then you check into the room and Wi-Fi costs you $12. 
How irritating is that? You're like, I, I just spent major money and now I'm being nickeled and dimed. I feel like it's the same way with donors. If you ask for money multiple times or big things and small things, just ask for once, or just ask once a year rather, and then lay out that big vision and let the donor decide on the scope of how they want to partner with you. Right. That makes a lot of sense. It's interesting with the whole, if you have this donor set up or it's interesting if you have the whole setup where you're scheduling multiple meetings with donors before you make the ask, you have this reinforcing feedback loop where I never asked for money on that first meeting, then I get the second or the third, and sometimes I ask for money. So it would seem like, well, people never give me money on the first meeting, but it's also could be just because you've never asked. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that your the way you're framing this is really important. Think about your own life, not as a fundraiser, but as a donor. Would you mind if a compelling nonprofit sat down with you and inspired you and then asked for money? Almost all of us have been at experiences, maybe it's at church, maybe it's at some nonprofit event, where you've sat through uh, an experience and, (coughs) excuse me, the person has asked for money and you've been inspired to give. We've all been moved by that in that way. We haven't felt like somebody went from, you know, zero to the ass too quickly. We've been uh, inspired and have acted. Prospects are no different. Donors are no different. You, They have the ability and part of why they're meeting with you is because they already like the work that you're doing or they're really open to learning more. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our upcoming seven-figure fundraising workshop, October 26th through 28th, which is being held live and online. We'll be teaching the entire seven-figure fundraising system and how to grow your existing major donors and to find new ones. This is an intimate live workshop limited to just 24 people, so you can have that one-on-one experience of being able to talk with the instructors and teachers, but also leave feeling confident knowing exactly what to say at your next donor meeting. Here's what some of the past attendees of our live online training have said. Kendall from Montana said, starting a nonprofit in 2020 wasn't easy, but seven-figure fundraising and the pitch coaching helped give me the tools I needed to be successful. Within only a few weeks of the training, I raised a five-figure gift using my pitch. Kyle from Georgia said, The pitch I created during the workshop really helped me feel more confident during the donor meeting. Now I know exactly what to say and how to present our vision in a way that connects with donors. To learn more, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com where you can sign up for the workshop or schedule a call to answer any questions that you have about the workshop. I hope you'll be able to join us October 26th through the 28th. Now, back to the interview. All right. So one final question before we shift gears into actually what a pitch looks like, the specifics of it, is how do you end the meeting with the donor? Do you let them signal like it's time to wrap up or do you signal that yourself? How do you handle that where you're trying to be respectful of the time that they have given you, but also if they want to continue talking, you're there? Well, that's part of why I think it's helpful to just ask for uh, the time constraints at the start of the meeting. But you want to honor their time and be aware of the time. You know, ideally, there's a clock in the room. And so you can do this in a little more discreet way. But you can look at your watch or look at your uh, cell phone for the time um, and just honor the donor's time. I think that you always want to signal that you're professional, that you start, you know, you arrive early, uh, not creepy early, like 
45 minutes, but like 10 minutes early, uh, and that you honor the time that they have. Whether that's, and if they don't have broad time constraints, just let the meeting go to its natural course. And I think you can always end the meeting by saying, I know you're busy. I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time. And I really appreciate your partnership with us. Uh, we've accomplished a lot. And I look forward to seeing you again, blah, 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 whenever you're going to meet again. You know, it might be six months from now. It might be some uh, at some nonprofit event, uh, your own or someone, uh, another one uh, that you'll see them at. But you can signal that. And do you ask when to fi- like how to follow up with them about the gift if they didn't give you an answer right then? Yes, I think it's important to, again, not guess, but just to say to them, what's the best way to follow up with you? I'll give you an example of this. Um, I was meeting with a prospect recently and asked him for money. Uh, He was going to take some time to think about it. And I said, what's the best way to follow up? He was very explicit. He said, it's best to follow up with me by email. Why don't you reach out 10 days from now? So I did exactly that. But people will be direct. Like, again, they're used to this kind of business, they, uh, and they will tell you uh, what they want. Months from now, or, you know, one day from now, if their process is, they spend about a week thinking about it. Exactly. And I would also just say, just because somebody doesn't get back to you or doesn't get back right away doesn't mean that they're not interested. Uh, a lot of times I've found people would say, oh, I'll follow up with you in this way. And then the actual follow-up takes longer. It's not because they don't care. They're not committed. They're just busy individuals or their handler is really busy. And so I would just say follow up in a regular, respectful way until you get a response and don't read into it. And you can reasonably follow up with somebody every seven to 10 days without being annoying. Uh, And I think an easy way to do this is just to say, hey, I know you're busy. Just wanted to follow up again. Uh, See if you had a chance to consider or see if you need more information. People understand that. It's just when you don't follow up, there's no opportunity. And odds are somebody's not going to proactively reach out and say, oh, yeah, we met three months ago. I meant to give you a check. Here it is. Right. Well, I think you're what you said earlier, and don't read into it. I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges where we all are really good at creating narratives in our mind on like, oh, they're not interested or, you know, it's going to be a no. That's why they haven't responded. But it's just right. usually it's- they're busy. No, exactly. And think about in your own life, you know, you may intend to respond to a certain email, you may even open it uh, and leave it open as a, you know, visual reminder. And then life happens. And all of a sudden, it's been several days, maybe 10 days, and you're embarrassed to respond. But if the person had followed up with you during that time, you wouldn't have thought anything about it. In fact, it would have been helpful. Right. I think that's a story of all of our inboxes. Right, exactly. Or think about it this way, too, of somebody calls you, they leave a voicemail, but they also shoot you a text or an email so that you have a lot of different easy ways to follow up, and then you choose the time and method to follow up. Again, make it easy uh, for the individual. Don't overcomplicate it and get out of your own head with reading into uh, no response. Until there's a firm no, uh, which you always want to honor, just follow up in a consistent, respectful way. That's such great advice. So shifting gears a little bit back to the pitch part, talk. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how to go through and create a pitch if you've never created a pitch before? Like what would be a process, someone who's listening to this, they're like, this is interesting, I want to try this. What would be a process that you would say, go through and create a pitch? Well, I think that there are really two probably uh, major constructs for how a pitch uh, is generally um, laid out. 
And these aren't uh, like particularly magic things. These are logical ways that people hear stories uh, in the Western culture. Um, I've found for uh, established organizations, you tend to have a structure of a pitch that first with current donors uh, thanks them for what they've already given over time. So you always want to start out with a thank you. And then the structure of a pitch tends to be look back, recap the accomplishments to date. So you're not assuming that the donor remembers them, but you're recapping them for the donor. Uh, look down, meaning lay out for them the opportunity that's in front of you right now or and with a sense of urgency on why they need to respond or renew their uh, partnership with you. And that's and like the look- programs, like what you're working on today. Exactly. It might be some expansion of what you're doing. It's not a project, but it's part of like, what's the opportunity right in front this year? It doesn't have to be right in front this quarter or this week, but right in front of us this year. And then look forward is paint a picture of if we're able to accomplish this thing because you partner with us, what will the world look like? And then ask. So thank, look back, look down, look forward, ask. It's got that five-part structure. And then the other structure often works for startup organizations or smaller organizations. And that's really more of a David and Goliath kind of uh, scenario where you're starting up, you're small, but you're mighty. And you want to lay out, here's the big challenge in front of us. You know, It could be everything from curing cancer to ending homelessness locally to you know, inspiring kids through art. But you're small. You have this big challenge in front of you, and here's how you're going to accomplish it. So it's a bit of rather than apologizing for being small or apologizing for being a startup, you're saying, I'm David. I see that it's Goliath. You know, Here's my stones and sling on how we're going to cha- meet the need of this big challenge in front of us. And ultimately, here's what success looks like a year from now or a couple years from now. But you're laying out in the more of a David and Goliath way. Here's a really big challenge. Here's how we're going to respond. And here's what the world will look like when we do 12 to 24 months from now. Uh, And so that David and Goliath structure really works well for startups or really works well if you're in your first couple of years uh, and you're building out your approach. Right. And going back to something you brought up in the last episode with how donors invest in chefs, not restaurants. In that sort of David and Goliath scenario, you'd want to present a bunch of information or some information at least on your bio as the leader of the organization, why you're uniquely qualified to do this. Is that correct? Absolutely. And so part of that bio might be, I have a personal connection with this problem that really makes me passionate about it. Or it might be, I have unique expertise and experience that makes me uniquely positioned to take on Goliath in this particular way. So it doesn't have to be, I'm super smart, I've figured out all these things. It could be just, this matters a lot to me personally for this particular reason. Or it could be, I have a background and perspective that makes me uniquely positioned to take on this challenge. I think this is where people are a little more reluctant to talk about themselves as part of the pitch. But as you said, you know, with chefs, people investing in chefs, not restaurants, particularly for startups, I think it's important to explain to them, like, I'm an award-winning chef, you know, as evidenced by this or in this particular way. Right. So it's not like you're bragging. You're just establishing why you're the best person to do this job. Exactly. 
that don't come across as arrogant, but come across as confident as evidenced by this particular thing, life experience, expertise, background, and passion. You want to sound passionate. And one of the things you talk about in the workshop um, is with these different pitches, you know, depending if you're the startup or you're an established organization with this history, you know, with a look back, look down, look forward, is really thinking about the one thing you want the donor to remember. Why is that so important? I think it's important that when you are pitching somebody or selling them, if you will, that you want to give them the words that they can explain to somebody else why they've bought. What exactly are they buying? And so when, when we think about this, like let's step out of the fundraising world and just think about how we all purchase things. We all purchase based on emotion and we justify with facts and we tell other people about our purchases with some story. You know, if you're from the Midwest, that story always involves the great deal you got on it and how it was on sale. You know, uh, if you're from the Northeast, it might be, you know, why this was so intellectually fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm stereotyping here, but the, the fact is we all justify why we bought things based on some narrative or story. And part of what you're doing is you're giving somebody that particular story or that memorable part of what exactly they're buying so they can relate it to somebody else. And beyond just bragging rights, this is really important because for a lot of people, they talk to somebody else before they make a decision. They might be talking to a spouse. They might be talking to their financial advisor, or they just might want to relate the thing that they gave to to somebody else and uh, to tell them about it because it's a key thing that they're proud of. And so you want to give them the words to do that in a memorable way. Right. Well, and so many donors to give in a certain sector of the nonprofit space. So they may give to very similar organizations that are different by geography, or they give to a lot of schools, for example, in several different geographies. So it is, it can be that all that because they're working on similar projects and similar things, the, uh, the whole, um, because they're working on similar objects and, or similar projects and similar things, people, they can tend to, forget the specifics of your organization unless you have a compelling story or that one big point for them to remember. I think this matters more than most nonprofit leaders and fundraisers understand. And I'll give you just an example. Um, I, uh, or my organization receives money from a family foundation that has three generations of family members, but gives broadly to my industry. Okay. So the very type of thing that you just outlined uh, the woman who runs this foundation, not a family member, but they have professional staff, two professional staff that run this uh, family foundation. She said to me recently, you're my favorite organization because I can explain what you do in a sentence and can really easily measure success. And I thought, okay, you give to a lot of groups that work in the similar industry. They would probably be horrified that you couldn't explain what they do in a sentence, but it speaks to the very point you made of you want to give people that language of here's the pithy, compelling thing that we do, and here's how we measure success. And that's so much more rare among nonprofits. And what I've found is it's not because people don't know how to explain what they do in a sentence. They just haven't worked to do it, and so they tend not to do it. Uh, and they don't then give those words to their donors or prospects of this is what we do, this is how we do it, and here's how you explain it to other people. That's such an interesting like nuance too on 
by giving even their professional staff that are helping make those decisions the words to easily talk about it. They can go advocate for you or you just stay top of mind of all the other people who are asking for money. I think that this is an area where a lot of times we can just assume, oh, people understand that not recognizing they live busy, complex lives. And even if they understand it, you want to remind them and remind them with the best way to remember it. Right. And I've also found that sometimes donors will tell you why they like you that will give you new ways to explaining it too. And so sometimes you could even ask, like we were talking about earlier, at the latter part of the donor meeting, say you have a really generous donor, you could ask that donor, you know, what do you really like about us? Or how do you explain us to other, uh, you know, your friends and family? And you'll get some nuggets out of that that might you that you might want to incorporate in your next pitch. So they'll tell you like a certain program that they like or the way that you market or something along those lines, typically? Exactly. Or I, exp- I really like you because you do this. And you'll think, oh, well, we do other things, but this is what you're buying. I probably want to build this out a little bit more or give you a little bit more substance under this one thing. So with this whole pitch and all of these different components we've talked about, um, both, you know, if you're doing the David Goliath or you're doing more of the established organization, finding the word, the exact words to do this, you say you used a script and you mentioned in the last episode how you practice a lot. Can you just talk a little bit about how long you tend to practice when you have a new pitch and, you know, the preparation that goes into that? Well, I think that the preparation is really the key because preparation is putting together the the thought process, the brainstorming, the refining by talking to other people about, is this compelling? How do I make it better? Um, that whole process is about two hours of preparation and practice for every one minute of the actual pitch. And so, we just went through this process. Uh, we're actually going through it right now of refining our pitch. Uh, it is hours and hours. You said two hours for, for every, every minute. minute. Right. So if I have a 10 minute pitch, that's 20 hours of work of going into it and lots of practice. And even, but the good thing is I'm going to use this particular pitch for the next six months. And if I'm going to ask for a lot of money, I better put in the time and effort. And so on one hand, that sounds like a lot of time and effort, but I would think nothing about traveling for 10 hours to get 10 minutes in front of somebody who had massive capacity. But for some reason, a lot of fundraisers don't think about honoring the person you're getting 10 minutes with, with that same kind of preparation. It's high stakes. And the fact is, if that one experience goes well, the rest of your year is easier. And if it doesn't, your entire life, personally and professionally, becomes more difficult. Right. And when you know what to say with the donors, you're also not as afraid to go to these meetings, like contrasting what you said at the beginning of the episode with, you know, you'd go into the meeting, kind of make it up new each time. If you have a script, you know what you're going to say. Well, think about just to put this in a different context. We have all seen the, you know, red carpet interviews with actors who really uh, struggle over answering basic questions. And you think, oh, my gosh, this person is so compelling with a script, but struggles uh, off the cuff. Well, all of us, to a certain extent, are that exact same way. We're better when we practice and prepare and really have the best words to say in the best way possible and to communicate this big vision of what we're working on. Um, and you want to put your best performance forward. Mm-hmm. Or, or to use a different framework, you think about like an athlete who's so great on the field in this particular structure that they can excel at, but might struggle with explaining 
uh, one-on-one in an interview of how they do it. Right. And for a lot of reasons, too, that's like because it's so complex. They know it in such detail that it's hard to get it to that like type, like you said, six-minute pitch or eight-minute pitch where you're laying out all the complicated things that your organization is doing or, in your analogy, the athlete's doing um, to execute but telling it in a compelling way that people can remember without going into the weeds. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like being really sophisticated and clever is taking complicated things and explaining them in simple ways. I, I think about like, I really struggled taking physics in college. It's really complicated. Uh, it, but if it had a professor or tutor who could take that complex thing and explain it in a simple way, I might've got a better grade rather than just barely passing I think physics is complicated for most people in college. <laughs> At least that was my experience as well. It's true. It's true. Luckily, I haven't had to rely on it for my everyday professional life. So that's been the biggest gift. Right. The uh, Some of the hidden benefits of fundraising, right? No right, physics exactly. required. Um, on that note, uh, how can people find out more about how to create a pitch, how to learn the exact words to say when they're going into a fundraising meeting. So as a final question, Taryn, if you were trying to convince someone on the number one reason why they should try this approach, this kind of different approach to fundraising, what would that be? The fact is, when you know you do something really well, you're more apt to do it more often. And I struggled with fundraising because I didn't do it well, and I didn't know how to do it. And the exciting thing is, it's not magic beans. It's just a mindset and a skill set you can learn. And I think that anyone who's head of fundraising for their organization or anyone who is the CEO of their nonprofit has the innate passion to be compelling as a fundraiser. All they need is the right words and structure to do it. And once you have it, you're so much more willing to take that donor meeting to sit in front of that prospect because you know, I can be compelling. This is exactly what I'm going to say. This is exactly how I'm going to say it. This is how I'm going to make it memorable. And I know people will like it. And the fact is, we've been able to grow our organization, not because we have thousands upon thousands of people who are casually into what we do, but because we have a few dozen people who are all in on what we do. We are very interesting to them, and we're one of their top philanthropic priorities. That's what you want. And the way to get there is to be pithy, compelling, uh, and memorable. And this is the structure. What we've just been talking about is the way to do it. And once you know how to do it, you're willing to do it over and over again. That's a great way to end it. And that's a great next step for people to take uh, to implement this in their own organizations. Thanks, Taryn. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for listening. To learn more about seven-figure fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks. Thanks.